family. It's really good to see you here. Thank you for prioritizing our, our family gathering. I really appreciate that. If you're visiting, I want you to know that we're really glad to have you with our family this morning. Uh, welcome. We're, we're glad that you're here. And if you are visiting or new, uh, and the, the turnover is constant here, so we, we constantly have people leaving and, and new people arriving. Um, well, you may not be as familiar with us and who we are as a church family. Uh, this is stenciled on the wall in the back. This is who we want to be imperfectly, but this is, this is our heart. Uh, we feel this is our Father's heart for us. We are a family of missionary servants learning to live everyday life with gospel power and purpose. We are ordinary people. Yes, we are. Uh, ordinary people learning to live with gospel intentionality, sent as disciples who make disciples. So let's, as we begin, uh, let's just pray and ask God to continue cultivating that here and to help us with our time together this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that you give us freely through Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for pursuing us, rescuing us, uh, living as our rescuing king. Thank you for giving us life. Um, out of your death and your resurrection. Thank you for giving us your spirit and Holy Spirit. We thank you for bringing us to life, uh, for restoring us in the image of Jesus, for giving us the words of Jesus, um, helping us to live according to those words, and just recreating in us this image that was so badly marred in our rebellion. So we thank you for restoring our lives. Help us to submit to you gladly this morning, and as we do, I pray that you would uh, even, even more just do the, the continuing work of restoration in our hearts uh, for your fame, uh, for the good of our family, and for the good of those who are not yet adopted in. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we began a series in the opening chapters of Revelation entitled Seven Letters. And our goal in this series is to learn more about who God has created us to be as his church and to what he calls us or how he calls us to live. And so far, last week was week one. Here's what we learned. We learned that the church is God's sent family of missionary servants or servant missionaries for whom safety is found in a sovereign sending king, not in safe places or cities um, or circumstances. Revelation chapters 1 to 3, where the entire series will unfold, contains one really long letter. It has a long introduction, all of chapter 1. That's what we saw last week. And that introduction is followed by seven sections or seven mini letters addressed to seven different churches. And though each mini letter is addressed to a specific church, they are meant by God to be authoritative and life-shaping, not just for the seven original recipients, but for all churches of all time, to include our own church family, uh, Pillar Church of Okinawa. And this morning, we're going to explore the first of the seven letters within the letter. So we're going to read it together here in a moment. But before we do, let me give you the big idea of the passage so that we can all be tracking in the same direction. Uh, here it is. We're going to see that Jesus commends the church, which works, at, works hard at right doctrine and patient endurance. But in the absence of love, even that really good church that he commends is as good as dead. So let's read the text together. You'll find it in Revelation chapter 2. It goes from verse 1 to verse 7. It'll also be on the screen for you. It reads like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested them. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are, and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, for my fame, and you have not grown weary in this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Therefore, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers in these things, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the big idea for this morning, we see Jesus commend the church, which works hard at right doctrine and patient endurance. But in the absence of love, that good, commendable church is still just as good as dead. So we'll kind of hang our thoughts on three points this morning. Number one, just simply Jesus commends his church. And then number two, working hard at right doctrine and patiently enduring does make for a really good church. It's a good church. And then our third and final point will be this, but in the absence of love, even that really good church, it looks good, feels good, even that church is as good as dead in the absence of love. So number one, Jesus commends his church. John's letter to the church in um, Ephesus contains, as we read, only the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we know from our time in chapter one last week, this description applies to none other than Jesus. So we could, uh, we could read that sentence as not the words of him, but we could just simply say the words of Jesus. So this is Jesus' personal commendation to his church. And then the intro sentence goes on to make two claims about Jesus, that he holds the seven stars and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And again, from last week, chapter one, we know that the seven stars are representative of actual angels or messengers that submit to Jesus and serve Jesus by serving these churches, one angel or messenger per church. And then for the lampstands, we know in the text that these are symbolic of the church. There is one representative lampstand for every church that has a letter in this, in this long letter. So Jesus holds these seven angels, the text says, and he walks among his churches. And taken together, Jesus holding and Jesus walking, uh, these, these words point to three important realities for us this morning. First, the Jesus who walks among us, he's present. Jesus is present, exercising watchful care over every single church. In fact, in verse two, Jesus just comes out and says it. He says, he looks us in the eyes and he says, I know your works. I, I know everything about you. Jesus knows exactly what we do or don't do as a church. And he knows why we do what we do or what we don't. In other words, he knows our hearts. He knows our motives. Nobody else here in this room right now knows what's going on in your heart or your mind. Now, your spouse has suggested that they do, but it's just a suggestion. They don't actually know. Jesus knows. He knows what we were thinking on the way here. He knows what was going on in our hearts all week long. He knows as we're sitting here and standing and singing. So he knows. He sees, he sees it all. 
in everything he sees. There's nothing about us that Jesus doesn't see and doesn't know, nothing at all. So in his presence, Jesus exercises watchful care over us. Nothing escapes his attention or care. So Jesus is present. Another idea that we see here is that Jesus is sovereign. the, The sense that he's holding the messengers and that he's present among the lampstands. He rules over his churches and also the cities that these churches exist in. So Jesus is sovereign over us and he is sovereign over the city that we live in. So because Jesus is sovereign, we don't fear. We don't fear in our circumstances. Rather, we choose to trust him. We don't need to control our circumstances or people because Jesus is in control. That's a weight that is off of our shoulders. We don't need to shrink back in fear. Rather, now we're free to lean in and press forward. We do not need to be, the church does not need to be in a political majority, nor does the church need to be a cultural majority in order for the church to be effective and to do and be what Jesus has called us to to be and do. Jesus' sovereignty over us and over our city then is a profound source of both confidence for us, but also peace when circumstances are difficult. So Jesus is present, he's sovereign, and he has all authority over us, the third idea here. Every church belongs to Jesus. He has full and absolute, unquestioned authority over us. And so that is just one of the reasons why here at Pillar we have a plurality of elders. The New Testament used the word elder or pastor um, or overseer for, for a pastor. And so we don't have just one who's in charge. We have a team that together submits to Jesus' authority to care for his family. We don't have just one lead pastor because Jesus is the lead pastor and together we submit to him. Submit to him in his authority, submit to him in striving to care for his family, and submitting to him in leading the family on mission. But the bottom line is the church belongs to and is ruled by Jesus, not me or any one of the other elders or the longest tenured member, or which is a problem we'll just never have here. Uh, it doesn't belong to us. This is Jesus' church. Every church belongs to him. And this letter even opens with an authoritative tone. It says to us the words of him, kind of mirroring, mirroring Old Testament language. Uh, if you grew up with the King James, you grew up with the King James, thus saith the Lord. Um, kind of the formula where Old Testament writers would invoke to let you know, hey, this is, this is God personally doing the talking now. So when people kind of question the divinity of Jesus, uh, you don't necessarily have to find a Bible verse that just straight up says Jesus is God. Like this is one verse and a long list of many verses that says, look, the same way that God the Father, God himself is introduced in the Old Testament when he's about to speak is the same way that Jesus is introduced here. Like he's, he's God. The, the New Testament is just kind of planting this flag here and it says Jesus is God. Um, the opening, the words of him or the words of Jesus point us to this reality. Jesus is God and in being God, he has absolute authority over us. So we submit to him in all things. We don't redefine his revelation. We don't adjust culturally. We just gladly submit to the authority of Jesus over us. So he's present, he's sovereign, he's sovereign over our city and he has all authority. Jesus received a message from the father, the book of Revelation, um, the message of Revelation. Jesus um, sent this along to an angel who gave it to John, who's now writing this letter to give to the churches. And now we receive this. And every church since Ephesus has received to it. So um, now as, a, as followers of Jesus, 
the way that we respond to his presence and the way that we embrace his sovereignty and the way that we submit to his authority is by receiving this letter and the other letters in here. We, we, we receive them as from him and we submit to them as from him. We submit to the contents of the letter. Guys, that's simply what it means to be a Christian. Like that is a definition of what it means to be a Christian. We receive Jesus' word and we submit to his authority over us. A person is not a Christian because they say they are. A person is not a Christian because of where they were born or how they vote or because they go to church or because they cheer for the SEC or because they eat Chick-fil-A. Like none of these, they're cultural like ideas of what it means to kind of come from a Christian people group. Uh, but in the, in the New Testament, in the Bible, that's not at all what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is somebody who joyfully responds to Jesus' presence gladly embraces Jesus' sovereignty and willingly submits to Jesus' authority. That's, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian. So these Christians here in Ephesus uh, received this letter. Ephesus was a city of about a quarter million people, pretty big. Uh, it was a trend-setting city in commerce and culture and religion. In fact, Ephesus in that day was known by the title of Temple Wardens. It was a big religious mecca. So they had a temple for the goddess Artemis. People would flock here. And they also had two temples in the city just for the people who wanted to worship the emperor of Rome, go worship the, the king. So Republicans in office and you're Republican, you go to this city, like Democrat, like, you know, we don't, yeah, so like that really hasn't changed. Like we don't say it the same way or posture ourselves the same way, but we give our hearts to these leaders and worship them in ways we don't even realize. And so Ephesus was kind of the epicenter of, of that was going on. Paul planted this church. Paul planted it in the mid-50s AD. So they're about 40, 45 years old when they're getting this letter. Uh, when John wrote it to them. And you can actually read about the start of this church in Acts, chapter, Acts chapters 19 and 20. Fascinating story. You should read it uh, sometime this week. And of course, you know, we have an entire letter in the New Testament written to this church in Ephesus. Uh, we know that letter as Ephesians right in the heart of our, our New Testament. And like every other city, like our own city, Ephesus really, really needed the gospel. And God used the gospel to just rock Ephesus. Here's just a little example from Acts 19, and these are the words. This is a quote from an angry businessman whose business, like his income, was actually drying up because his customer base was being eroded by the gospel. That's how you know the gospel's going to work in a city. And here's what he says. He says, um, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she, she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Man, you know the gospel is rocking a city when the, when the economy is reordered, and that's what's going on here. So the gospel starts in our hearts. That's what happens first. The gospel exposes our substitute idols, our false gods, which could be any number of things. For most of us, it's just ourselves. Like, Jesus doesn't rule me, I rule me. Like, that's the most common. It could be your career. For you, that could be your substitute god, your false, your, your idol. Um, it could be your personal fitness. It could be it could be any number of things, your entertainment, your hobbies, right? The, the list is a mile long. So the gospel exposes those things, shows us our need for Christ, shows us the mercy that we receive from God through Jesus, and uh, points us to him. So it, it radically reorders our heart around Jesus. So there are ways that we can tell our hearts have been reordered, right? This is not arbitrary or ambiguous. So what would be some ways that we could tell? 
Well, one of the biggest ways is how you choose to spend your own personal money. That is, that is one of the primary factors or indicators of where our hearts are at. That's what happened in Ephesus. So many people were rescued by God through the gospel. So many hearts were reordered. So many checking accounts were rerouted that the businesses that essentially funded idolatry and self-worship in Ephesus to include human trafficking guys and sex slavery dried up so much that the merchants who ran these uh, enterprises are like, yo, we're angry about this. So God rocked Ephesus, rescued a bunch of rebels, and reordered the economy. And God rescued many people there, and the church is born. So this, the, the church in Ephesus is born um, at this time. And let's do what we didn't do last week. The word church keeps coming up, and we're kind of in a series talking about who we are as a church and what God has called us to. Let's actually define the word church as it is in the New Testament. Because the problem is many of us bring with us ideas about church that are shaped more by culture and personal experience than by Jesus himself. So let's, let's uh, bring these things to Christ and submit to his word. Um, our English word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And all ekklesia means is assembly or gathering. That's, that's all the word means. So it's a gathering of people. So when you see the word church, just loosely it means a gathering of people. But we know from the New Testament, it's not just a gathering of any old people, it's a gathering of God's people. The church is the gathering of God's people, his deeply loved sons and daughters, his family. So the church then, we could say it this way, it's God's gathered family. It's God's family together. This is the church. And so the church is not like a family, the church is family. It's not like God's yelling down at us saying, man, I just wish you guys would live more like brothers and sisters. He's saying, I have created the church as a family. You're actually adopted into a real family. Now live into the reality of what you are. It's not that the church is like a family. The church actually is a family. Now, albeit an imperfect family, just like the family you come from, but a family nonetheless. Uh, that's how the New Testament authors always talk about the church. They always talk about the church as God's adopted in sons and daughters. We're his kids. And when it's talking about our relationships, how are they always framed? Well, they're your brothers. They're your sisters. And we don't have many mothers and fathers in the room to us, but uh, our mothers and fathers. Well, church is family. So whenever we see church, synonymously, just in your mind, you can think, all right, we're talking about God's family, God's people. This is, this is what's going on. So not business, not organization, not not-for-profit, not fill in the blank, God's family. One other point I just want to make, in the New Testament, the word church can be used kind of three different ways. It can be used universally, like globally. It can be used regionally, and it can be used locally. Let me just show you. Uh, here's Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. He's speaking about the worldwide global church of all time. He takes responsibility for it. He takes ownership for it. He's going to build it, and the plan is not going to fail. That doesn't apply to us locally because a local church may be planted, and it may grow up a little bit, and then it may die. And it's not that Jesus has failed in his promise. His promise is globally, I will build my church, and I will never tap out. So it's got a global, universal sense. It's got a regional sense. Acts 9.31 says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and then it goes on to talk about them. So you've got universal, and now this biblical author wants to talk about the church's health in a given region, but he's talking about multiple churches within the region. And then here's one more locally. 
Uh, Romans 16.5, Paul writing to the church in Rome, he says, hey, greet also the church in their house. Their house being just one of the many local churches in the city of Rome. So it's used locally as well. Like for us here, we are a local expression of God's global family, right? Pillar Church of Okinawa is just one of many. Kind of like growing up, uh, your parents had kids, his brother and their wife had kids, like you had aunts and uncles, they had kids. So God's family... um, um, you know, we, we, we gather occasionally for these big gatherings up at grandma and grandpa's house, and then we scatter as individual families, and like, that's kind of representative of the picture that we see in the New Testament. So you're like, all right, John, got it. Like, just got it. Move along. You, you hang out in places way too long. Let's move on to the next thing. Why are we talking about this? Here's why we're talking about this, guys. In Scripture, to be one of God's people, it's always expressed actually. It's expressed actually, not theoretically, not just spiritually. So it's expressed in practice not just in theory. It's expressed in person, not just in principle. We could say it this way. What is true spiritually in us is or should always be expressed actually in a local way. Or we could say it this way. To belong to God's family universally is to belong to a specific gathering of his family locally. In other words, a claim to be a part of God's universal family without actual hands-on, flesh and blood, eye-to-eye, shoulder-to-shoulder interaction locally would suggest that maybe the claim to be in God's family globally is not a legitimate claim. The, The universal membership is expressed locally is what the New Testament gets at. So to belong to God's family university, universally is to belong to a specific gathering of his family locally. So what does that mean for us? It means that John Ransom alone is not the church. When I leave here by myself, I am not the church. I'm a part of God's family, but I am not God's family, if you can say it that way, right? It's not me, nor is it you. You are not God's church. And we can extend that out a little bit more, like uh, your organic family, if you choose to stay home, like we're just doing our own little church thing here. Like, I'm sorry, like you're not the church. You're just not the church. Um, staying home to stream a service or to watch, quote, church on TV or like that's, that's not being, being the church. It's always expressed in flesh and blood. Together we are the church. We have a hard time wrestling with that sometimes, but imagine, imagine if our kids got up during the gathering, they walked out of the, the kids' building and they left you all a note. And they're like, hey, it's been real. Um, we're, thanks for everything. We're getting our own place here in Okinawa. Like, let us know when the detailer or monitor gets us orders. Like, if it's a good next stop, we'll roll with you. Like, we may, like, that kind of attempt at autonomy, it's making you laugh just thinking about it because it's ludicrous. It's insanity. It's unnatural. We know that's not the way it's meant to be. But some, sometimes when we start talking with fellow Christians, it's like, now how dare you suggest, like, I'm part of God's family globally. Like, I don't need it locally. Like, I'm just, I'm in. Like, I'm insulted that you would suggest I need to be long. Imagine if kids talked like that. It'd be absurd. Guys, if New Testament authors were here, they would say, yeah, that, that's absurd that Christians would talk about not belonging to a local gathering of Christians. It's unnatural. It's unhealthy. You could even say it this way. It's unknown in the New Testament. It is an unknown category. It doesn't exist. So why does this matter? It matters because if you're a Christian, you need God's family, not just universally. You need it locally in your life. Uh, You need to submit to God's family. You need to serve God's family and be served by that family. You need to love her and be loved back by her. That's how we submit to Jesus. 
It's how we submit. So this letter to the church in Ephesus was not addressed to individual Christians living in the city of Ephesus Ephesus, who otherwise had nothing to do with each other. Uh, This letter was addressed to Christians who not only lived in the same city, but also shared life as God's family of servant missionaries. So their lives were interwoven with each other, meaning the original recipients of this letter could not actually submit to Jesus and obey him on their own. You can't just receive revelation and be like, man, I love Jesus. I'm gonna obey this letter now in isolation or autonomy. It's received and embraced and lived out in community. So the only way that we as followers of Jesus can submit to him and obey his word is by submission to and participation in the life of a church, his family expressed locally wherever you are and wherever you happen to PCS. You, we need God's family. This particular expression of God's family in Ephesus was doing really well in some ways. So this is a letter of commendation. In fact, Jesus writes to commend them uh, for two reasons, which is really encouraging for us and clear, meaning as a church, it's not left for us to figure out what would make Jesus glad or happy. Like, it's not left to us to define the church or what a church should value. All we need to do is look to God's word to discover, because it's clear as day, it's, it's all over the place. Oh, these are the things Jesus values. This is our identity. These are our purposes. This is what we want to grow into and aspire to be. We don't have to define it or discover it. Jesus just gives it to us. Here it is. So let's look at what Jesus commends for this church. And then let's consider if we could be commended for the same reasons that they're being commended. Let's, let's ask those questions. So here's point number two. Working hard at right doctrine and patiently enduring makes for a really good church family. So Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for two specific qualities or works which made them a good church. He says to them, I know your works. And then he says what those works are, your toil and your patient endurance. And then we're like, all right, the toil, I don't really get what he's getting at. Well, good news, the rest of verse two explains to us what the toil is, so it'll be, it'll be given to us. And then verse three goes on to explain what the patient endurance is. So it's just, it's just given to us right here. So let's look at that toil or that hard work first. What we first have to notice is this, Jesus wasn't simply commending a good work ethic. Like that's commendable in the life of a family or a church. We should work hard, but he's being more specific than that. He's talking about a specific hard work. Um, And here it is. He was commending the work they were doing to uphold right doctrine. And don't be intimidated by the word doctrine. Right doctrine simply means right belief and right practice. So right doctrine being we've received God's word. Here it is. So we know it and we seek to learn how to live in it, right? That would be right doctrine. And this church is is working at that. But then from what we observe in the letter, there seems to have been professed Christians, real or not, we don't know, probably not, who somewhat relentlessly inserted themselves into the life of the church, or maybe they were already part of the church, and they claimed to be apostles. Like, all right, well... Like, what does that mean? Somebody claims to be an apostle. Generally, here's what that would mean. An apostle would have been one of the first 12 followers of Jesus who had actually seen him as the resurrected Christ. And Jesus looked him in the eye and said, I'm going to make you this. I'm going to make you an apostle. And as an apostle, you're going to have a special authority over the church. And I'm going to give you my words directly to pass down to the church. And as those apostles died off, they were not replaced with follow-on apostles. Now, sometimes you'll hear people saying like, man, he or she is kind of apostolic or they're like an apostle. They're not trying to, well, hopefully they're not trying to say he or she is an apostle because that would just be 
like counter to everything that's written in there. They're just like an apostles were like early church planters. They were pioneering. They would go and start new things where things didn't exist. So to be apostolic would be to be just like that first generation, to take God's word and to take God's authority and to go to a place where God's word is not expressed and his authority is not known and to plant a church. So you can still kind of be gifted in an apostolic way, but the authority of the apostle and kind of the, the, the work of the apostle to speak scripture is gone. Like that died off in the first generation of apostles. So these cats roll up and we're like, we're apostles. He's an apostle. She's an apostle. Meaning you need to listen to us. Like we have special authority over you and it's unquestioned authority. Like I'm going to teach you some new thing that you haven't heard before and I don't want you to question it. That's what they were doing. They were claiming an authority and they were claiming that they had these new teachings. So whenever you guys sniff out or hear anything like, hey, I got a new teaching. Nobody's learned this for like 2,000 years, but all of a sudden I've discovered this. You should listen to me. Like red flags everywhere, red flags everywhere. Even without the words, they're kind of claiming to be apostolic. Like I've got special authority and I have a special message, especially when that special message is in addition to what Jesus has already revealed. Um, Sometimes it's not as obvious. Where it is more obvious is when it's different than what Jesus has already revealed, right? The good news is, rather than just accepting these guys or ladies who said we're apostles, the church in Ephesus actually tested those claims, and that's what Jesus is commending them for. That's really good. And so we've got to ask, all right, well, how would they have tested such claims? Well, they filtered every teaching, even the character of these people, through God's word. This is what they did. Through the word that they'd already received from Jesus through the real apostles, they test the claim the claims and the teachings and the character of these other people, and the claims were found to be false. Their character was found to be fraudulent, not like Jesus. And so the church in Ephesus is like, yo, you're sorry, you're false apostles. Like, we are not only going to not listen to you, but uh, you're just not welcome here. Jesus actually calls these false apostles in the letter. You see the word that he uses? He calls them evil, which to me kind of signals they were not actually real uh, followers of Jesus. They were masquerading, trying to take advantage of Jesus' church, maybe to make money off of them, maybe to, we don't know, to abuse in some way. We just don't know, but they're evil. Um, but guys, that also signals to us this. It is an act of evil to claim spiritual authority over another person when that authority has not been granted by Jesus or recognized by a local church. That's evil. It's evil. It's also evil to claim a new teaching with equal or greater authority than what Jesus has already delivered to us in this world and try to pass that along to people with some sense of spiritual authority. Those things are evil. And so in this letter, we see the church has two commendable responses to these false teachers and their false claims. Number one, they simply didn't put up with it. That's what verse two says. They were commended for not bearing with them. That just means um, that they shut it right down. Like they listened once, they tested it through the grid of scripture and said, I'm sorry, like you are inconsistent with Jesus in both your teaching and your character. Like we're just not gonna have a circular argument with you. Like we're not even defining terms the same way. So we'll have the conversation once and then we're done. They didn't bear with it. So that's, Jesus says, is commendable. Why is that commendable? It's such a distraction to the church and it can be really destructive to the church. Like we are called to be and do uh, certain things in G- for Jesus' fame and for the good of people. And if all we do is spend our time with these, these uh, arguments, Paul would say in the New Testament, like I don't even waste my time with these things because what Jesus has given us to do is so important. So they shut it down. Number two, Uh, We learn later in this letter that they hated the works of any teaching in conflict with the gospel. That's what it said in verse 6. It says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, honestly, 
The New Testament says so little about the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about who these guys are. Uh, They're probably different than the false apostles we read about in the beginning of the letter, probably two different groups of people. And then based on clues that we'll see in coming letters, it seems that the Nicolaitans twisted God's word for two very specific purposes. The first was they just wanted to express themselves sexually however they wanted to express themselves sexually. And so they would take God's word and say, well, it shouldn't be worded this way or culture changes or this isn't relevant. Like, um, and so they would justify their own sexual expression, still common in our day today. And the other thing that they would do is they would twist God's word to kind of justify what we might call nominal Christianity or lip service to Jesus. Like, yeah, I love God and I go to church. Like, I'm in, I'm good. But then Monday through Saturday still belonged to them and they lived however they wanted and they'd get to the end of the week. They'd go to mass. Oh, I should, that was a bit personal too soon there. Uh, they would go confess. Um, they would go confess and just say, well, God's grace is enough. Like he loves me. His grace is enough. I can live however I want. Like this whole talk about having affections for Jesus and allegiance to Jesus that trumps everything else. Not really what it means. He's going to show me grace at the end. So I live how I want. See, the Bible says it right here. And that's what the Nicolaitans would do. And so the church in Ephesus was commended for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. Why? Because both of those beliefs Unhindered sexual expression and the right to live however you want rather than submitting to Jesus are destructive to anybody, but especially God's people. Now notice though, the text says, it doesn't say that they hated the Nicolaitans themselves. It says that they hated their works. And Jesus never commends his family for hating anyone. He does commend us for hating works or words or teaching that are in conflict with the gospel, yes, But there's a very important distinction. We should hate those things, but he never commends the church for taking the posture of hate towards people who are outside um, or deceived or teaching differently. We gotta be careful there. So let's ask these questions. Would we be commended for this quality of working diligently to know and uphold doctrine or right teaching? Like, could we as Pillar Church be commended in the same way that the church in Ephesus was commended for this quality? Let's ask a few follow-on questions to maybe tease that out a little bit. Do we test the teaching that we receive against the word? Like, are you actively testing what I say right now against what you know to be true in scripture? Are you going to go home with your notes and test what I say against scripture? I hope you do. I hope you do, and I hope you do that in whatever church you're ever a part of or whatever conference you go to. Do you take the books, blogs, and podcasts that you consume and submit them to the authority of Jesus' word? Do we test the character of teachers and pastors that we listen to against what Jesus said, says should be true of their character? In other words, are they, do they look something like Jesus? Is Jesus being formed in them? And if not, we can walk away from that teaching. We should. Here's another question. Do we know Jesus' word well enough that we could test teaching or a blog or a book without a Google search or asking Siri? Are we completely dependent upon artificial intelligence or other sources to tell us what God's word says? Or are we just diligently getting after it so that his word is in our heart and we can test it by going to the word ourselves? 
Do we know the storyline of the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration well enough to kind of identify fraudulent elements that other people might try to insert into the good news of the gospel? Do we know the simple beauty of the gospel well enough to spot anti-gospel stuff or extra-gospel stuff? Do we know Jesus as hero so that when we start hearing teaching that comes from the Bible that kind of says, you're the hero, or be really good, or be really strong, and there's no mention of Jesus that we're like, man, that is so wrong. It's got to be pointing us back to Jesus. Do we know the Bible well enough that if we're told anything about being something good in our own strength, that it's a lie, that being a Christian is all about 100% dependence upon the presence of the Holy Spirit? Guys, if this work is something that Jesus commends for his family, what would it look like for all of us to give ourselves to growing in these ways this year so that collectively our church family would be stronger and more commendable in this area? Or we could ask it this way, for you personally, what is one specific discipline as a family member that you could adopt and develop in your own life so that collectively our church would grow to be made more stronger in this area? It'll be a collective effort. So Jesus commends them for working hard at right doctrine, and then he also commends them for their patient endurance. So these guys were patiently enduring in the face of persecution and cultural marginalization. Guys, Jesus calls us to patiently endure. This is what he commends for his family, that we would be a family of people who patiently endure when life is hard. They were also, it wasn't just patient endurance of stuff outside the family. This church is like 45 years old, so you know what else they were enduring? Each other. Like they were patiently enduring with each other, a messy, imperfect family. And why did they patiently endure? Well, the text says they endured for Jesus' namesake, meaning because of him and for him. They patiently endured persecution because of their identity with Jesus and for Jesus' fame, and they patiently endured with Jesus' imperfect family for Jesus. Like, this is the gift that we give to Jesus. We patiently endure. And guys, in all this enduring, they were tired for sure, but Jesus said they had not grown weary, meaning that they were tired, but they had not tapped out. So just just know belonging to an imperfect church family will induce some measure of weariness in your soul. It's hard work, and it's a messy family. But Jesus commends the families who don't tap out on each other, but rather persevere for Jesus' sake. And so we bear up. We grow tired and enduring, but we don't tap out. So here's another question for us. Are we patiently enduring marginalization and persecution outside the family? Or what's our gut-level response when those things come? Take control, change circumstances, right? What does Jesus commend? Patient endurance, trusting his sovereignty. So are we enduring there? What about inside the family? Are we patiently enduring with our imperfect family? What's the gut level response when church is messy? I'll go find a better one. Uh, so I told, I've told you before, my wife and I are from Binghamton, and I've pretty much exhausted in sermons anything positive to tell you about that city. But here's one more. Binghamton is the world capital of carousels. Did you know? Plan your next vacation, meaning we have the most active carousels in Binghamton. We, I repent. They have the most, I'm never going back. They have the most active carousels more than any other city in the world. They're kind of run down and falling apart, but they're there and they're still running. So what do we do as kids or even adults? When We did it this summer. My family and I were there visiting family. You get up on a, you identify the horse you want, the creature. You get on it after just a a painful decision, and then 20 seconds later, what's your heart saying? New horse, better horse. My brother got a better horse. And we either change mid-ride, which 
my boys and I, my kids and I did a little bit. Or you wait for the ride to be over and you change and ride again. So as a youth pastor in Binghamton, there was kind of this current of Christians in the city that was synonymous with riding carousels. They would, they, there was this current stream or this constant stream of people that would roll through churches. They'd be there for a little while and a fence would happen or something minor would take place and be like, I'm out, I'm gonna go find a better church. There were like 200 churches, unhealthy churches in this area for that reason. Guys, that's our default in the flesh. But Jesus calls us to patiently endure with his families. Jesus wants to deconstruct the carousels in our heart, and he calls us not to treat the church like a carousel ride, but to treat it like his family and to patiently endure where he plants us, no matter how imperfect the family is. So here's a question. Am I personally contributing to the collective endurance of this family? Am I helping other people in the family endure? What am I doing to help my own heart endure so that my expectations are not crushed by an imperfect family, but I'm satisfied in Jesus? Guys, this is what he commends in the life of his church. So for these two commendable qualities, the church was really good. They loved right doctrine and they endured with each other. They didn't tap out and run away, but they had a serious problem. And this problem was rendering this otherwise good church as good as dead. And here it is, our third point. In the absence of love, any seemingly good church is actually just as good as dead. Like you might as well shut the doors no matter what else the church is doing right. So in verse four, we read, Jesus says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And then that statement is followed by an immediate warning. He says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What does this warning mean? Like for us, lampstand is like, all right, Jesus, take the lampstand. Like it's in storage. We don't even use, like we bring it out for Advent and Christmas and that's it. You can have it. But remember in these letters, what are lampstands symbolic of? Remember? The church, like the church itself. So what's Jesus saying in this warning? What I think he's saying, Jesus could be saying, guys, you're going to lose your status as a legitimate church in my eyes if you don't repent of this absence of love. So their sign still may read Ephesus Christian Church, or in our case, Boobies Tattoo, but no matter what the sign says, Jesus is just saying, I don't really care what's on the sign. Like, I see you for who you are, and this is not my true family. Like, this is not my church. So Jesus is saying to them, you will cease to be in a church. I don't care what you call yourselves. I'll cease to call you a church myself. He could also be saying that You are going to lose the empowering presence of my spirit that I have given to you, so the light of the gospel will no longer shine from your church. There will be no life since all life comes from the spirit. There will be no joy since all joy comes from the spirit. There will be no real love since all love comes from the spirit. Guys, this is a serious warning that no matter how good a church may seem to be, if there's no love, there's no spirit. There is no life. There is no light. There is no power. There may not even be recognition by Jesus that we are in fact a church in the absence of love. And what's even sober, more sobering than that is at one time, this church family was anchored in God's love for them. They were a church that knew God's love and showed God's love. They loved Jesus, they loved Jesus' family, and they loved people who were not yet in the family. But guys, listen, untended love, like untended fire, will burn out. It will fade and it will die and it will become extinguished. Uh, like marriage, just think of marriage. Uh, love is not magic. It can be magical, 
That's great. But love itself is not magic. Love is moment. And love is, is not less than our emotions, which is good news for us. Jesus gave us emotions and they're beautiful and redemptive. They're good. But love is more than emotion, which is really good news for us. So we can still love and be loved even when the feeling is not present, right? So it's, it's bigger than emotion, not less than, but bigger. And so here's the reality. Um, love is moment by moment work, often in the mundane undesirable moments. And so perhaps what happened to them is that their zeal for the truth had affected their hearts over time. It kind of calloused their hearts. So they loved being right, the thing that they were commended for. They loved being right more than they actually loved Jesus, the one for whom all the rightness pointed to. Like maybe they came to the point where uh, they loved being right more than they loved people. They loved the Bible more than the one the Bible talks about. So they had transitioned from hating the works of the Nicolaitans to straight up actually hating the Nicolaitans themselves. Or probably they had transitioned from um, not bearing with the false apostles to just straight up beating them down with their words on social media. Don't hang around Christian Twitter or Facebook. It is a toxic, embarrassing, unhealthy place to go. And you know why? It is full of this spirit right here. Constant criticism and correction from around the world and attacks of character, and it's toxic. Guys, you dip your toes into those waters, you will find yourself swimming in those waters soon, and it is a toxic, embarrassing place that brings dishonor to the name of Christ. All right, off my soapbox. Don't hang out with or follow Christians on social media who make it their practice to constantly be criticizing and telling you that all these people are wrong and they are right and all these people are bad and there's nothing redemptive. That is a toxic pool to be swimming in. You will become like them. You will become like the church in Ephesus. You will become a loveless critic and that's a tragic place to become or tra tragic place to find yourself. Somebody once said this. They said, that, they said the worst people I've ever known have been doctrinally correct. They're like, wait, John, what's wrong with being doctrinally correct? Hold on, they said another sentence. They said, the best people I've ever known have also been doctrinally correct. The difference is, this person goes on to say, the first use the doctrine to reinforce their own superiority or their own rightness or their own hero status, right? Their own authority. The latter receive God's word as a glimpse of Christ and they bow low, confident in their, his love for them and they love other people out of that right doctrine. There is a profound difference there. I grew up with this constant temptation believing it was good enough to be right. Like that's what Jesus wanted for me, just to be right and to know right and to guard right. And if I was just right, I'd be a good Christian. And there's a temptation to believe that even now, but my boy Sam Albury says it this way. He says, if it's lacking in charity or love, it's not orthodoxy. I don't care how, how right your doctrine is. I don't care how much you know. It's not me saying that. Like, that's what Corinthians says, right? You can have all the gifts. You can know it all. And if love is not present, you're worse than your uh, two-year-old who's next door right now coming over here and picking up all of Grant's toys and, like, trying to make music. It would be a hideous sound that we'd all want to cover our ears to protect ourselves from. And that's what happened here. They had abandoned the love that they had at first. We know this from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. They once were a love-filled church. Look at this, Galatians 6.24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is who they were. They had an incorruptible love for Jesus, but something changed. Something changed. Uh, Paul said in 115, he said, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. They were a beautiful, life-giving, loving church. 
But if love, like untended fires, burn out, um, how do we fuel this fire, right? How do we fuel this love for Jesus and people? Well, right here, Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So the church in Ephesus had sunk their roots here, and so love grew up out of that. So in the constant rehearsal of who God is and his love for us, love grows in the family. And we see this all through Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul prayed for them, I pray that you would know the love of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 2, they were bearing with one another in love. Chapter 5, verse 1, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There's a definition of love right there, giving yourself up for another's good. And then chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. They once were this family, and it was beautiful, but their love had grown cold, and it was no longer a life-giving place. They had abandoned the love they had at first, and fire, the fire of their affection for Jesus had been left untended, and it was now a cold, dead family. And guys, before we pass judgment on them, every one of us have been in that season where the fires of our affection have been left untended, and we know exactly what's being described here. We've had that cold heart. It's unfeeling. The affection's gone. The allegiance dead. I don't want to love you. I don't want to bear up here. I don't feel loved by Jesus. It's cold and dead. But Jesus is so good to us here. Look at this. In this passage, he tells us how to rekindle lost love. Did you know that lost love is not love lost forever? Did you know that? This is really good news, not just for your relationship with Jesus, but in your marriages and every other relationship. Love lost, especially the feeling, love lost is not love lost forever. It can be rekindled and regained. And here's how. It's right here daily. John says, remember, repent, and reorder your works. So here it is. Here's the pathway back to a, a, a loving heart. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. This is a daily remembering. It's daily honest reflection. It's daily asking the question, have I fallen or am I falling? Or guys, listen, for some of us, you haven't, you're not falling, you didn't fall, and you're not falling but, but you're not falling because you've never relationally been in a place with Jesus from which you can fall. We gotta be honest here. We've gotta be honest here. It's possible that we grew up in the church and we go to church and we do these religious things, but our lives has never really been rocked by Jesus' love. And so, so we've never reordered our lives around his love for us and our love for him. And we've never really loved others, giving ourselves up for the good of others like he did for us. It's possible, and we've got to ask that question. So daily remembering begins with rehearsing the Father's love for me through Jesus. So we rehearse that daily. This is the beginning of the pathway back, and we repent. John says we, we repent. He says, we say to our Father, I'm sorry, Dad. You know my heart. You know my love is fading. You know it has faded. You know I'm growing cold. You know I have grown cold, and I've grown cold. It's my responsibility because I have not been tending the fire of my love for you. It's been left untended, and now it's extinguished. I've not been rehearsing your love for me, and so I am not responding to you out of love. It's just mere duty. It's cold. It's dead. I'm not loving your family and I'm not loving people outside of your family. Dad, I'm wrong. I need help. I confess these things to you. And so in this repentance and in this confession, I am going to very weakly begin walking towards you again, even if I don't feel like it. And guys, can we just get this disclaimer out there? You won't feel like it. The feeling's dead at this point. 
And so we look into our Father and we say, I don't feel it, but I trust who you are. And so I'm going to begin walking to you again. And I trust that as I walk towards you, you will heal my heart and you will rekindle my love for you by your spirit. And as that love is slowly rekindled, I will once again feel affection for and allegiance to your family. That is the only way it will be rekindled. So, so John says, rehearse, remember, uh, repent. And then he says, do the works that you did at first. And the trouble with us in this work is not that it's complicated work. It's that it's work that is counter to our nature. I don't want to do the work and I don't want it to be work. How often do you, do you hear this? If, if we really loved each other, this would not be work. Like it can't be love because we have to work at this thing. Guys, love is work. The pathway to rekindle love is work. The pathway to maintaining the fires of affection is work. It will be work that you more often than not don't feel like doing. But we do the work that Jesus says. It's obedience. And what is that work? It's rehearsing his love for us. Like that is the work. We rehearse. We remember his love for us. We submit to him. We obey him. We pursue others. And we sacrifice at cost to ourselves for their good. That's the work that we did at first. So we rehearse. We remember. We repent. And we reorder our work to do what we did at first. And then it closes with a promise. Verse 7. To the one who conquers. Guys, that's quite a word especially in this context, meaning that this is something to be conquered. Like this problem, your heart, your tendency to not tend your affection for Jesus is a problem that must be conquered. My own heart, my own tendency toward untended love is one of my greatest enemies and your greatest enemies. It's got to be conquered. But Jesus is good to us even in this. Did you know that the Bible never calls you to conquer something that you can't conquer on your own? Wait, I said that backwards. I totally said that backwards. Okay, that was one of those test that statement things, like (laughs) throw some rocks at me. Rewind. Jesus never calls us to do something that he has not already accomplished for us. He does not call us to do stuff in our own strength. In fact, so much of your frustration as a Christian is you trying to be and do what Jesus has called you to be and do only through the strength of his spirit. We can't do this. Jesus is the conqueror. And so we conquer um, even our hearts only in Jesus by running to him who has already conquered sin and death on our behalf. And we run to him for help for our cold rebel hearts. Jesus conquered for us and he gives us his spirit as the empowering presence that conquers through us moment by moment. Not my strength, not yours, but his spirit in us. Family, John says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Guys, can we be the church that hears? No untended fires in this room. No absence of love. No lost lampstand. This year, let's give ourselves to learning to conquer our our hearts that are so prone to die out like that untended fire, but not through our own strength, but by faith in Jesus and through dependence on his spirit. And Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Guys, this is beautiful. The tree of life was present at creation in the Garden of Eden. It was meant to be life-giving for Adam and Eve. God's good and life-giving gift to them, however, was wrecked by their untended rebel hearts. So Jesus' promise here is one of restoration, meaning that in the final Eden, the curse of sin will be reversed. And while we cannot self-restore and we cannot overcome or conquer our own rebel hearts, in the meantime, if we run to Jesus the one who conquers on behalf of all those who trust him, we will not only experience rekindled and sustained love now, like in the promises for now, in this lifetime, your heart can be healed. 
You can know this love. We will not only experience it now, we will know it fully and finally in a restoration that is complete in the next. And this is the good news of the gospel, guys. The good news is looking you in the eye saying, stop trying to conquer this on your own. You can't do it. The good news of the gospel is this burden is too great for you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus recognized the burden was too great for you and he picked it up and he carried it and he conquered your naturally untended heart. And the good news of the gospel is you don't fix yourself. You don't, you don't get to the end by yourself. You run to Jesus saying, I can't do this. I'm done. I've tried and I've failed and I'm tired of failing and I need you and I need your grace and I need your strength and I need you to heal my heart. I need to know your love and feel your love. And in knowing and feeling, I want to be able to love you like you have loved me. And that is only shaped by the gospel, guys. And the only thing that will cause us to be conquerors and get us home to where we finally know full restoration in the next is Jesus himself, not you. So that's the good news of the gospel for us this morning, guys. What a beautiful passage and what a beautiful call for our church family. Not in our strength this year, guys. Let's kill that. Let's disassemble it like the rusty carousels in New York that just need to go away. Let's persevere by trusting Jesus, rehearsing his love, and living in the reality of that love towards each other. Let's pray. God, so many words this morning. Um, Let's pray that you'd rekindle the lost fires of affection for you that are in this room. Father, you know my own heart. This is a a daily battle, a weekly battle. It's true for our church family as well, Jesus. Father, by your mercy, just pour out your spirit for us. Rekindle those fires where they have been extinguished. Help us to, to be reminded of your love for us. Father, help us to be the kind of church family that loves each other like you loved us, where you, you were willing to sacrifice yourself for us, as messy, imperfect rebels. And Father, help us not to get so caught up in ourselves. Help us to remember that we exist for those who aren't even here yet, and that we would leave these doors today and pursue people who are not yet in your family with the same love with which you pursued us. Father, don't let any more fires die in here today, this year. Help us to be the kind of family that helps each other tend those fires. It's because we love you for your namesake and for our brothers and sisters' good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.